This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by the Frontline Team. Corey, you know so much about mortgage brokers, I can't even begin to discuss it. And what I love about these guys is that they they pretty much they stick to the golden rule, just like us fans. Um, something that that they have said over and over again is that if they if they would do it for themselves or their family, that's the golden rule that they stick to when it comes to lending to, to individuals. So, again, these guys are just class act guys. Um, we, well, it's a veteran-owned company. Yep. It's like like anything else in the fire department. You you have a guy. So these are your guys. If mortgage, if you're in need of a mortgage, if you want to refinance or something like that, these are the guys. They've done a bunch of work with uh, other first responders. They know what's going on. And you get to work with guys like Joey Matthews, Josh Hill, uh, Local 2 Zone, Tom Kelly, Ivan and Danielle. Where can these guys get a hold of uh, Frontline Team? So we got their phone number and their phone number is 630. 630- 534-2900. You guys can also email them at the frontline team at the federal savings bank.com. That number 630 534 2900 I hope. Is that a 2900 down. Wrote down. <laughs> it's, it's close. <laughs> Text them just to make sure first. Um any any type of picture really they'll, they'll accept it. <laughs> Uh, again, make sure to check out our guys over there at the front line team. <laughs> that one did not That's go well. That's going to some cuts. That did not go well. Engine 1, engine 4, truck 2, truck 10, ambulance 82, battalion 2, fire 1020 North Main, help is on the way. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories brought to you by Zoll Medical and Zoll EMS and Fire. That looks good. All right. Well, welcome back to Chicago's Bravest Stories. We, I always say we have a special guest in the <laughs> studio, don't I? But that statement carries more weight in today's episode than ever because in the studio, straight from the East Coast, author of the book Burn, Boston, Burn, and Bang, Boom, Burn, the new book, which is not available yet. It'll be available on September 29th. All right, coming up. But By the time we have it, you guys will be able to check it out. That's for sure. We have a a copy of the book sitting right here on the desk. Mm -hmm. but uh, Hot off the presses, Vince. (laughs) It it really is hot off the presses. Retired ATF agent Wayne Miller. So uh, on his whirlwind arson investigation tour with our own Corey Lieber in the studio. So thank you, Mr. Miller, for being here. I know uh, we were just talking off the air that you've done a few of these podcasts, and um, I, I hope it le- this is his favorite one, though. Well, have how was the the bourbon with the other podcasts that you've been on? Uh, nobody else offered me Thank bourbon. you very much. Uh, thank okay, you very that, much. That's a win, Vinny. Thank you. Check one for <laughs> Chicago's Bravest Stories. We've had you on before, but I did it uh, while you were uh, still on the East Coast. And now that we have you in the studio, I, I still have questions about the Burn Boston Burn that you wrote. Mm-hmm. So 
264 fires took place in a, a two-year span, right? Exactly. And the how the history of how that all came about that you know I know you went to college and you weren't you were you weren't planning on doing this when you went to went to school right this wasn't even on the radar at the time because you went to Brent my my first school was the University of Connecticut okay for engineering I realized I wasn't cut out for that uh, one year later I went to Bryant University in Rhode Island and uh, criminal justice okay I loved it from the first day and I loved it till the end of my career. Okay. You kind of got went to a, like a recruitment center or something like that, or they, they came to your school, the ATF came to your school doing a re- recruitment drive or something like that, and you ran into the ATF? Right. It was a law enforcement day. Okay. So several agencies. 1976, not many people really knew who ATF was yet because they only became a separate bureau in 72. Okay. So when I heard them, uh, I said, I don't really want to do drug cases the rest of my life because I don't think you're getting anywhere. So ATF sounded very interesting. Okay. And when, uh, if we, if we look back in your career and how much arson investigation you wound up doing later in your career, it's kind of surprising because when you came on, that wasn't even a part of ATF at the time. Exactly. In 76, you know, uh, guys, the older guys were just getting off of uh, being revenueers, you know, after stills and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, the young guys were all brought on in that time period for concentrated urban enforcement, Q, C-U-E, uh, trying to stem the tide of gun violence back in the mid-'70s. And that's what we all worked on. My first four years, that's all I did. And were you mostly on the East Coast then? Always. I was always in Boston. Uh, always always in Boston. Okay. Yep. yep. Uh, it wasn't until uh, Ronald Reagan uh, changed the, the verbiage, really, uh, of what your, your roles as ATF agents were that you actually got an opportunity to move into what wound up being like the rest of your career, right? You really did read the book, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and this is a test question for the guys um, this week in the two classes I'm teaching. Um, but 1982, uh, the federal explosive law, 1982, uh, which came in 1970, uh, ATF worked some arson cases under this convoluted system of trying to show that the place did explode or could explode. Like if you pour a little gasoline in this room here, you have the right mixture. So we had to show that it could explode if it didn't, you know. Right, showing showing that there was a pressure. Strange way, strange way of doing this. In 1982, President Reagan signed into law changing that existing explosive law if you damage or destroy a building by means of explosive or fire. Two words. That's all that changed <laughs> the law. And that was given to ATF as a primary jurisdiction. So who who handled it before you guys, federally? Nobody. We, so, the explosive law, nobody had an arson law. So everything was jurisdictional, like your the local police department yeah, or, or, or like fire department. State agency. Yeah. Yeah. It was a local matter. Okay. State fire marshals type of thing okay so just those two words sent you in action gave gave wayne a right. big job <laughs> yes i mean cities were burning 
um, across the country, you know, New York, Chicago, L.A., Boston. Cities were burning. So a book came out in the early 70s, America Burning, a very famous treatise back then. And um, the federal government got involved through Congress that we could help the state and local guys on complex cases, things outside of one jurisdiction, that type of thing. And that's why they brought us on board. Okay. And when you I, – I wrote down here because I, I really wanted to be prepared because I, I had all those questions for you. And this – what did we have him on, a year ago? Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah, we were just talking about it. The book is – I think it was a couple months old when we talked to him, and that was the last one. Yeah. Um, you, you started your career with the ATF in 1976, right? Sounds like I'm an old guy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you you volunteered for, you wanted to study uh, origin and cause, right? And in 1986, that's when you went to your, is that your first class with uh, CFI, with the ATF? That's the class that they put on for, for guys like you, right? Yes, they, they have certified fire investigators across the country. And that was the very first class that ATF did. It, it was a two-year program. But I started with the National Fire Academy and State Fire Academy in 1980. Okay. And my first fire scene was 1980, even before the law changed. But I couldn't really work fires too much. Right. And when you went to CFI to get in that class, you, you had to have 100 fires and 160 hours of training, right? That's correct. Okay. So these were seasoned guys that you were you were going to take this class with. And that was kind of going to be the stepping stone for really the ATF to really get out there in, in mass and start really doing something about like arsons, like at a federal level. Right. Right. So prior to, prior to you going through how many, I mean, if you had to estimate how many guys were ready out there with boots on the ground before you, before AT, ATF guys, ATF guys. Yeah. Only a handful. Really? Yes. A couple of guys really wanted to work fires. Um, there was a guy in Atlanta, um, who's passed away now, but uh, he's the one that got like the national response teams going. Um, you know, ATF did the right thing, and the federal government. And that training that we had just continued year after year uh, between ATF and my 18 years privately afterwards. I ended up with 3,000 hours of training. I've set 100 training fires myself. Uh, that's not a confession that you can... <laughs> uh, even if it is, you need corroboration to uh, <laughs> prosecute. <laughs> uh, but the training has been phenomenal. Yeah. I, I kind of just want to get right into it because I, I want to get to the new book too. But kind of set us up for what was, what was the landscape of um, Boston when these fires started? Because I know that without a spoiler alert, it wasn't that great for local, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to give too much away, right. well, uh, public service, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah, public and service guys were, were ta being taken advantage, right, Wayne? They were not going to take advantage. They were getting beat up pretty good in the Boston area from this I mean, from this new right. law, right? Losing funding and, and everything like that, right? Right. I mean, I teach this class all the time. I mean, before COVID, I had 34 live events. I had a dozen zoom events during COVID, and now I'm back on the, on the trail again. But, uh, so I try not to tell them the whole story, but 
we ended up with a bunch of fire buffs, guys who like to collect equipment, take photographs, go to fire scenes. But they were also public servants. Um, we had three police officers, one a Boston City police officer, two housing officers. We had a Boston firefighter and two other guys that were firefighters amongst nine guys that joined together. And they joined together because they were fire buffs, and they would chase the fires, and uh, you know, they'd sit with their uh, Nerf cruisers, their black LTDs and Chevy sedans, and uh, the whip antennas and the black, black sidewalls and everything. And they would wait for a call to come in, and they would go and go to the fire scenes. They'd be listening to the scanner. Yeah. All the time. And just, and just rip to these fires, right? Yep. Trying to beat, yeah. And Boston in 1980 had the tax cutting measure. Now, this is November 4th, 1980, that the tax cutting measure, Proposition 2.5 in Massachusetts, got voted in by the citizens of the state. A lot of people liked it because our taxes were too high. And this limited, if you had a $100,000 piece of property, your taxes were limited to 2.5% or $2,500. What happened to these older cities, and Massachusetts has enough older cities, that the property values weren't very high. So now you're limiting the taxes. So how am I going to pay the civil servants? So who's the usual suspects? Your school teachers, your police, and your fire department get laid off. Boston lost 600 firefighter positions out of 1,700 in the two-year period that it started going into effect. And 22 fire companies closed in the city. Imagine the city of Chicago closing 22 down. Yeah, what was, I think you you set the stage in the book. What At that time, what were the, how many firemen were there in Boston again? Weren't there? 1,700 originally. Okay, and this, and after this, the cutting measure ended up dropping it down to what? What was it again? Uh, we lost six hundred, so okay, yeah, eleven hundred. You know, well over a, a third. Th- right, I was going to say a know? third of the part. Yeah, I mean, losing a third of your working fire department is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to be a thing. Yeah, and these guys—I mean, for all intents and purposes, these guys were disgruntled employees, basically, right? Some of them, only, you know, uh, the Boston cop. Got laid off for a short period of time, but he got another job, and then he got rehired back in Boston. The Boston firefighter got a pink slip, but he never got laid off. The other guys never got laid off. What they, I called it a twisted version of Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Instead of stealing from the rich, give to the poor, let's set a great number of fires so that they rehire our brothers and sisters on the jobs. And maybe someday we can get a job, because each one of them wanted to be a firefighter. Even the cops wanted to be firefighters. And at first, these were nothing fires, right? Just And it just escalated uh, throughout the course of the two years. Yeah, absolutely. The first, at first, they went did a whole bunch of dumpsters because we have an area in Boston along the Charles River where the brownstones have dumpsters behind each one, and they just put a little simple device in each one. And as they drove along, they would set 10, 20, and they'd go across the river and watch and listen to the radios and laugh at the firefighters because firefighters ended up coming from outside the back bay section, didn't know where they were or where they were going. (laughs) And uh, they realized that they wanted the people to scream and they wanted the press to pick it up, and it didn't happen with those dumpsters. 
So then they graduated to building fires. But it, at first it was abandoned buildings and just uh, buildings that were set to be torn down and stuff like that anyways, right? You know, the city of Boston's not like that today. You can't find a vacant <laughs> building, a vacant lot. Uh, property values are so ridiculously high. But back then there was lots and lots of residential vacants. Um, and these old, older neighborhoods, you know, the Roxbury, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, South Boston, Charlestown. Um, and there were so many, we had, we call them three deckers. Now I've been chastised by old time firefighters in the Boston area. I changed back and forth in the book saying, because I didn't want to use the same term, triple deckers, three deckers. The guy says triple deckers, a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a fireman. (laughs) So he said, call them three deckers. And there were so many. And I said, we could be a little safer this way. Nobody's living in them, so we don't have to worry about occupants. And then firefighters typically don't have to really spend time inside knowing that there's nothing much to save here. Yeah. And um, as a point of reference, we so we were kind of cruising around today and we were talking a, a three-decker. For all intents and purposes, it's pretty much a three-flat here by us, but yeah. instead of it being a brick, it's a it's a wood frame out out east so it's pretty much a wood frame uh wood frame three flat here um with with those shingles that ended up being a problem absolutely the favorite target besides these three deckers was ones that are sided with asphalt shingles which the nickname gas shingles because it's just solid gasoline that goes up so quickly yeah well the the guys who were doing the uh, setting the fires. These were South Boston guys. No, nope. um, one of them lived in the neighborhood of uh, Rosendale. Uh, the Boston cop didn't come from Boston itself. He lived out. None of them lived in the city except for. Oh, the Boston firefighter lived in West Roxbury. Okay. Um, nope. Just all different parts. Okay, it, but they came together in this united front and. And you, as an ATF agent who was investigating this, would you say that they were actually using the excuse of the uh, losing uh, staffing for the fire department more as an excuse? To, they were they really enjoyed setting fires, right? I still have contact with one of the master arsonists in this group. And he was present for 260 of the 264 fires. And the only one that, yeah, like that. I saw him a week ago Sunday, as a matter of fact. It's a weird, uh, professional-friendly relationship. But Wayne they, actually asked him to be his, uh, his kid's godfather. That's what <laughs> <laughs> He's met my wife. He, oh, my God. He hasn't been to the house, but he has oh. met my wife. Uh, he, he asked to meet along the highway. Uh, last Christmas, Christmas before, he wanted to purchase eight books to give us <laughs> Christmas presents. Now, here you are. Oh, boy. It's a story about <laughs> you being a criminal. Right. And he's giving them his Christmas presents. But that's the way life is with Greg. See, I was just so, saying, we, we get excited. I was talking to Wayne earlier about it. I'm like, I'm like I, I was all excited about Wayne signing this. I'm like, I kind of want this guy to sign my book. Like, he's the, he's the one who, who caused the whole thing. Yeah, well, could you imagine? I mean... It's like having John Wayne Gacy sign, sign the document right about John Wayne yeah, Gacy. That's, right. that's, that's crazy. So to get back to your question. So 
they actually did start initially as this um, militant group that wanted to try to help. Right. They, they, but, they started off with a noble cause, and you think it just got out of hand? They oh, were just started enjoying... Say, they got addicted to what they were doing. Yeah. It was nightly entertainment, and a ride around Boston for any other reason ended up being a fire. Yeah. You know, so... And, it, and it's ironic, because, like, the... I mean, first off, I got to imagine... And I can't remember if you said it in the book or not, but, like, I got to imagine initially... A part of you, or maybe even a part of a lot of a lot of the firemen, were rooting for these guys, you know. Uh, but, but ironically, on a on a department that's short staffed, well, it's not. A, it, you may root for them in the beginning of the book, but when you get toward the middle, when you have your your first your first injury of a firefighter, serious injuries, yeah, uh, like a a bad injury, right? That's when. You turn, and now you're rooting with Wayne, like, right. we got to catch this guy. Well, and that's the irony is that, like, you know, like, again, party is like, ah, oh, you know, like, these guys are trying to stick it back to him. But, like, you're starting fires on a short staff fire department. Like, what what do you think is going to happen? You know, like, what, what's going to – they laid off a third of their, their firemen, and, like, and you're starting more fires than they've ever had. Of course there's going to be guys that are going to yeah, well, you know? what – what I think they failed to realize was, all right, you've lost a third of your department. Now the response times are longer. So by the time they do get to these buildings, these buildings are far into the fire than they would normally on your initial response. Right. So these guys are showing up in an even more dangerous situation than if they were full staffed. Yeah. And I, I think I, I, from what I could get, that's like the one thing in their calculations that they messed up. Right. Well, and that was that was the big thing, too, right? Wayne was like, "Where, where were they starting these fires, right? Where, where were they start? They were starting them in in areas where they had shut down houses, oh, right? They, or, like a couple of these guys, Greg in particular, Greg Bemis, he knew every firebox number. He knew <laughs> the location. He started as a kid. You know what? I'm sorry, to interrupt you. Do you mind explaining to people just from from this area what's a firebox? Uh, firebox is on a pedestal. You might, some people might see them on a uh, utility pole. We still have some out here in Chicago. You'll Do see we? them. Yeah. I haven't I, seen one. Actually, I just showed one to my son, and I, I, I used my box key. I'm like, hey, I wonder if this opened up. It's just like some junction box for telephones or yeah. whatever, but the boxes still exist. Huh. Yeah. And you, you, you can still see the thing where they wind it. It winds it. Yeah. Oh. Huh. And these in particular, mm. back then, you could actually pull a receiver like a telephone and talk to fire alarm and report the fire. Oh, operator. That, that's old school. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, these guys, they started in February 1982 with the initial fire and ramped right up. And you're getting June 11th was the busiest night in Boston fire history with uh, 10 fires set by these guys. And my second daughter was born on June 25th, and they had six multiple alarm fires set by these guys, and up to 40 in a month. Dang. You know, and... Um, in, in, give us, what's, like, square miles, how, what are these guys operating in, like, what's their area that they're setting fires in? You know, none of them are in downtown, almost none, because it's not the type of building. Right. So downtown Boston is one mile by one mile, basically. 
Um, huh. And then all those neighborhoods, if you add them together, but they're not all together is the problem. Uh, some are south, some are southwest, some are west, because we're on the ocean too, so we only have th- three sides you can set fires in. Um, really, uh, eight by eight miles wise. Okay. That's so they're, they're covering, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to get a feel if the same company is going to put out the, the fires for these guys, but if they're covering that, they're they're hitting a few different yeah. stations. Well, they yeah. had friends in certain firehouses, so they said, let's give them action. <laughs> and they would set multiples in his area. And again, you were talking about these guys knew the system. They knew the first do. So they would set a fire where the firebox, they stole over a dozen of them that year. And that's ultimately would come back to haunt them later, right? Yes, it did. <laughs> yes, it did. But so... They set one where there's no firebox. So imagine driving in a very residential area in the middle of the night in the inner cities um, with no cell phones. Right. So a firebox is missing on this corner. So you got to go search out another one somewhere. You're not really going to stop and knock on somebody's door in the middle of the night in a lot of these neighborhoods. So the fire is growing every minute. And... Then they'd set a second fire, so that first do companies would go to that initial fire. Then they'd set a second one where that vacant firehouse is, and now a fire company has to come from further away. Uh, June 11th, we had fire companies from surrounding towns being the first company in from 12 to 15 miles away. Can you imagine that, Corey? You know? That's like, you know, just like me, Schomburg, me Schomburg showing up at Elmwood Park. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Or like yeah. me rolling into the whatever to... Yeah. to you go uh, into Rolling Cabrini. Meadows and being first in. Yeah. Man, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Not knowing, you don't have GPS either. You're right. As a matter of fact, my good buddy, Nat Whittemore, was a cameraman who was a big part of this story. And he's my biggest supporter after my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, a good guy. And um, he's out there every night working for the local TV station. He's the one who ultimately found, like, captured that footage that would give you guys the biggest break in this case, right? That is, we only had two real breaks, and that's the first one, and it was big. And uh, it's, it's a dramatic scene. It wasn't on purpose. He just happened to, to stumble upon that footage, right? Nat, t- uh, Nat was out there because he's out there nightly. He's a fire buff, too. But he, he wasn't like, oh, these are the guys I'm going to video. Uh, no, he knew of some of this group. He knew some of them were, they didn't like him. These guys were loud, boisterous. Right. And they rooted for the home team. Who's the home team? The fire. Not for the firefighters. <laughs> they rooted for the fires. And that came around the corner, November 21, 1982. And... At that point, we had probably about 120 to 140 fires set by these guys in a six-month period. And as he swung his camera around, the off-duty Boston police officer, and we have this. I have this on video now. I use this for my presentations. It's fantastic. Boston cop reaches for the shoulder holster, cross-draw type takes his pistol out and waves it in the air for about two to three seconds, 
like he's on a bucking bronco. <laughs> and his fellow pals next to him said, he's taking a picture of you. So he put it back. And one of the guy hides his face with his jacket and stuff like that. That video ended up, we interviewed that cop. He's Boston cop. We interviewed him a couple of days later. And the firebox was in his living room, stolen. And, I mean, the case didn't break then. We didn't interview him again after his attorney. He took a polygraph with us a couple of days later. And his attorney said he can't talk when he flunked the polygraph. That was the first week of December, 1982. We didn't talk to him again until January 1984, <laughs> 13 months before we ever do internal affairs. And the, the fires were still going at this time, or by the time you caught them, they, were, they, were, they, they weren't going to just stop on their own? I believe that the Grabluski incident, it was Robert Grabluski, the cop, I believe that that caused them to slow down because now we had a little bit of focus. Yeah. But they still continued throughout 83. 1983, I think they probably only set 60, 80 fires. But, but now they're being a little more careful, right? They're, they, they know you guys are on to something. They started branching out, really screwing with us. Uh, they went to Lawrence, 30 miles north of the city, Lowell, 30 mi- miles north, Fitchburg, 40 miles to the northwest, four multiple alarm fires in Fitchburg, set by them in one night because they knew we were onto them. Well, l- let me ask you this. How does the ATF get called to investigate this if everything's pretty much at the local level? How do you get involved? Hey guys, uh, you know what? We're just going to talk a minute about this awesome beer we've been drinking from Luminate Brew Works. Um, right now, I'm, I'm drinking Trust, and uh, this thing is it's just a really good lager. Um, we're going, we're kind of running the gauntlet here. We got some, uh, we got some awesome beer here, so we're just running through each one of them. Uh, I tried, Vince, you tried that Orange Sunshine too, right? Orange Sunshine is my new favorite summer beer. Yeah. Thanks to Brian at Illuminated Brew Works. If you guys are looking for an amazing craft beer, and, you know, I'm not a big craft beer guy, and I was a little hesitant, and then when we started popping yeah. these things open, uh, it was like Christmas. Yeah, we, we've been firing pretty good on we, these things. We, <laughs> we, we've been going through these yeah. like so this Bar Chicago's Bravest Stories is doing all right over here. Right. Well, the Illuminated Brew Works beer has saved us from drinking all the whiskey that we have here because... Uh, We've been drinking more beer than we have whiskey. It might not even it. be whiskey guys anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, that Creeper one was pretty good too, right? Once Creeper was it. good. And we're fresh out of astronaut juice. In yeah, there. if we had astronaut juice, that is my top one uh, from these guys. If you're looking for an amazing craft beer, you can find it at Benny's Norwood Park Wine and Spirits Beer Temple, which is right down the street here from the studio. So if you're uh, picking up some Illuminated Brew Works at Beer Temple, stop in, have a drink with us. Bottle and cans, uh, Capones, Totos, and Ryan's, Rayans, R-A-Y-A-N-S. Yeah, these are all bars they're selling in. And uh, you guys would notice it for sure once you walk in because they've got some really cool artwork on each of their cans. 
Um, so again, just, just look for the, the eye-popping uh, artwork that you're going to see, and that'll kind of lead you over. Again, this is Illuminated Brew Works. Make sure to check out anything that they've made so far, because everything I've tried has been awesome. Oh, it, it's really good. If you go to uh, that place, Wine Styles, at 6182 North Northwest Highway, you can pick it up. And coincidentally, that is right next door to where the new brew pub is going to be. Illuminated Brewworks is opening up a brew pub at 6186 North Northwest Highway. It's going to be amazing. The beer is amazing. And we are also asked to mention that the new Brony is coming back out. It's a double hop IPA. So for you IPA guys, the Brony is coming back. But the the beers that he has in stock right now are amazing. Uh, Illuminated Brew Works. Thanks, Brian, again for uh, you know keeping us in beer here. And you know when our guests come in and stuff like that, we give it to them as well. And we've heard nothing but great things from uh, our guests who've uh, walked out of here with a four pack of uh, Illuminated Brew Works. Thanks, guys. Again, make sure to check them out. Illuminated Brew Works. Well, for instance, those abandoned houses, ATF doesn't have the jurisdiction. Uh, but with so many fires going on, and ATF started the uh, Arson Task Force Group in Boston, March, the first week of March of 82, two weeks after they set their first fire, but had nothing to do with them. <laughs> that was a federal initiative that we had the uh, task force. It was just coincidence. Absolutely. That's, that's crazy. We had a lieutenant from Boston Fire sitting right in our group. He had his own desk. He had a federal car. He got uh, deputized so he could be privy to grand jury material. And so we work with Boston Arson Group, uh, now Fire Investigation Unit, and uh, we had meetings with them. They did all the fire scenes initially until June 3rd of 1982 when they did the Sparrow Toy Company. Now we got a commercial building that affects interstate commerce. Oh. So you, you need a building that, if you're going to go federally at all, it has to affect interstate commerce. Was it a stretch? Were you guys wanting to get in there? Were you like, oh, this is our in? No, we were working with them, but again. Uh, and then they did that, and you were like, okay, now we can bring the federal government to really to bear for this. We brought in full force. Yeah. We had the national response team for the very first time in Boston. Do you think if they hadn't set that fire and left you guys more on the sideline that they wouldn't have been caught? Um, you know, if they stayed away from commercial buildings, period, uh, there's a darn good chance they would not have been caught for a long, long time. It would have to be an accidental yeah. thing that caught them. And I, I know you've spoke to this before that this couldn't happen in modern time. I don't believe it could. Yeah. A lot of reasons. Social media. Cell phones. Cell phones. GPS tracking. Yeah. Vehicle you can track, you know, with the onboard systems inside a vehicle. Um, I, I don't think that the conspiracy would have held together the same way. Mm -hmm. um, cameras at every single corner. Uh, you know, well, they would have got to the first commercial building and been caught on camera. Camera. Yeah. Uh, ring, ring phones on people's houses. Yeah. You know, if you really look at things, you can track people. Yeah. yeah it's like, that's, and that's something I was, uh, I was thinking about, too. Like, just the amount of, like, old school, 
grindy police work that they had to have done back yeah, in the we, day. Yeah, we talked about that when we talked to uh, Wayne the first time that they had to do like, you know, like paper outs. and paper and pad yeah. and Overnight stakeouts outs and, and bad coffee uh-huh. and we got to break, throw the cup off out the window. And, you I, know, I, I like, felt bad. I felt bad. Like uh, whatever. Like like having having a smoke by Wayne. I'm like, he probably sat in a fucking old <laughs> old Dodge, like with right. some guy ripping heaters right next to him the whole time. <laughs> like, like same thing, drinking bad coffee. Yeah. Like terrible I, coffee. This fucking guy loves Fritos. <laughs> like you know, we're on top of uh, industrial buildings in South Boston. Luckily, it was summertime, but you're outside on top. And you have surveillance crews mobile down below, and you you got binoculars. And this is an industrial area. How many people really should be out and about? Yeah. Know, yeah. So, um, but, like, we're most of that for you guys was an educated guess at best that, all right, we're going to stake out here and hope, based on our best information, that maybe we, we catch a break and we'll they'll come to the area that we're actually staking out. Because they, when they were messing with you going 40 miles, in any direction just to mess with you guys and now you got to find a place to stake out like it you know it's like finding a needle in a stack of haystacks yeah just about plus they had a boston firefighter who was part of the group and he was on light house duty because of an injury and guess where he was he was in fire headquarters uh and the arson squad's there and all he has to do is look out the window on a Thursday night because a lot of the fire initial fires were uh, after midnight on Thursday, calling the Friday night firebug. So he looks out the window and he sees like there's 12 cars out there tonight. So these guys are going to be doing a stakeout somewhere. And he lets his pals know. Guess what? We never had a fire where our stakeouts were. You know, yeah. surprising. <laughs> right. surprising. Um, one thing that one thing that I thought was pretty cool. Um, could Wayne, could you describe the the incendiary device that they were using? So they used, I guess, what we'll call like a, a timed incendiary device that they came up with to set these um, set these areas on fire to pretty much like set this package up and walk away, and then the fire would start right. shortly after. Now, twenty five years ago, I wouldn't tell the general public this stuff. Oh, yeah, but today, between I imagine movies and TVs have beat you to it, Wayne. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> between my book, which my book is all public record anyway, because we had trials, um, and with the internet today, you can find anything. So, um, initially, those dumpsters was just simple with a cigarette laced into a matchbook. If you adjust the cigarette length. From the matches, you can give yourself a couple more minutes. Right. The, the length of the cigarette was the timer. Yes, yeah. exactly. So then Greg, who had went to a fire academy and learned how to make this device, <laughs> it was simply walk down the street with a brown paper bag, a lunch bag, and in there was a uh, Ziploc baggie with about a pint or so of Coleman lantern fuel. Very volatile. On top of that, some tissue. And then when you go to place your device either against those shingles on the outside or they went inside a lot of buildings and place it against combustibles, then they would place the cigarette and matchbook and just walk away. Were you able to, f- to discern that device during your investigation? Think about it. it. Virtually all of it would burn up to begin with, 
And then if you start hitting things with fire hose, you're never going to find it. And right. we did not. And you had no canines then either, no accelerant detection, which I'm not sure the train for Coleman Lantern fuel. But, but you did bring the dogs in? Uh, no, there were no dogs. Okay. We had no dogs until 86. And this is 1982 to 84 when the fires are set. So um, they graduated in the middle of the summer. They started collecting tires from vacant lots. Again, I don't know if you can find tires in vacant lots today because remember when you had to... Oh, here you can. <laughs> well, remember when you got rid of your tires back then, you bought new ones? Oh, uh, sure. Back then, you had to get rid of your own tires. Well, today, the tire companies charge you two bucks a tire or something. They'd put it in your back seat. <laughs> That's yeah. Well, they were, in, they were in vacant lots, and they picked them up, and then they put the device in the tire well and placed it up against the side of building or combustible material. That, that was the big upgrade, right? It, that was. And that's when we started finding the remains of the steel belts and the bottom treads. And then we knew, again, that we had the same person or group of people. But, you know, try to figure out a suspect in this case. <laughs> uh, we had 18 people on the list, 16 the next day, and then 18 the next day, back and forth. But... These particular guys, even so, Nat Whittemore and his pal, Ed Fowler, was an investigator in Cambridge, Mass., but he was also a photographer. And uh, they hung together a lot, and neither one of them liked a couple of these members. They didn't know other members by name. They might have seen their faces. Ed saw an arsonist behind every corner of a building, (laughs) every building that burned. He saw an arsonist. You need that type of guy sometimes, you know? And he was a good guy. He's, he's since passed away, too. I mean, I'm starting to sound like I'm a real old guy here. Uh. <laughs> but uh, just because you don't like these guys, because they're different, doesn't mean they're arsonists. And they had no evidence, zero. And we had nothing until... They didn't have records. No. So you, that didn't, the guys that you were focusing on were all like previous arsonists, that you had to start somewhere, right? And so I imagine your your suspect group was just prior arsonists that maybe were responsible for more than one fire and stuff like that, right? We we did have a couple, actually a couple of Boston firefighters were on that list because they were famous for setting some fires. <laughs> and, um, and some other people like that. Um, and that's what's crazy is that, like, like the profile... The classic profile of like your arsonist or criminal like that is like a loner. You know, it's it's not someone that like works with other people generally. You know, it's like a person that's just kind of like on their own and they don't really. They're they're probably socially awkward. And Did you like have that, that kind of information, uh, like profile stuff, available to you in '82? Profiling was just coming out. Um, but it is, you know, typically they talk about a white male who has a lower education, lower job type of thing. But can you imagine? We had eight arsonists, and the ninth guy joined the group later, but he wasn't a fire setter. But can you imagine eight guys joining in a conspiracy to burn building after building after injury? Like June 3rd, 1982, Sparrow Toy, there were 33 firefighters injured, but none quote, unquote, seriously. Now, when I speak in front of groups now, I say, how many firefighters in this group? 
How many of you guys have had a minor injury? If this ceiling comes down in this room and you, you get pulled out by your comrades, you had minor injury maybe. How close were you to having a major injury or death? And that's what is unbelievable. June, October 2nd, 1982, when uh, we had a horrific fire where guys fell through the roof and we had 22 severe injuries with burns, broken backs, broken legs. That, that's the fire that I was thinking of. Earlier. I know you were. <laughs> I knew you were. Uh, it's the East Street Military Barracks. Um, they call it the Enlisted Men's Club, too. And that's October 2nd. October was the third most prolific month for these guys setting fires. So that means most of the fires occurred after October 2nd. And they had a meeting the day after these injuries. And they said, you know, we didn't intend to. We, we wanted to be careful. And that's why we chose the type of buildings we chose. Well, guess what? Three days later, they set another commercial building on fire, which could have had the same exact injuries. Um, so they didn't give a crap. Yeah. You know. That, that's, that's when the book tur- took a turn for me. It, yeah, man, you know, fight the cause, and then it's like, your cause sucks. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> you know? It causes fucking everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's was yeah, eight guys. I, I can't get eight guys to agree on a pizza order. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And they held this together. Yeah. You you alluded on it before. Um, they had the Boston Sparks picnic, and the Boston Sparks is a one of the I think the oldest uh, fire buff uh, club in the country, and they're all over the place. You have them right here in Illinois, and um, they're legitimate. Groups. Um, two of these arsonists were members of the Sparks Club. Of course they were. Yeah. <laughs> two other guys were hated so much they got voted down several times. Really? And that's why they burned the Boston Sparks Club as well, part of this conspiracy. I think if you if this ever happens again, that should be the first like the first source stop. Of, right. Yeah. Check who got kicked out of the Sparks Club or who, who got <laughs> who, kicked out of the fan club. Who was too edgy for that club? Right. You know, like, like that suspect number one, right. suspect number two. So what a strange time, though. You got all the layoffs. You got these fires happening. They go to the Sparks picnic, and there's a lot of firefighters there. And they're talking, and they're saying, we ought to, you know, collect money for this guy uh, at the end of the week. He must be using fifty-five gallon drum of gasoline or something, you know. Um, they were well, gas was only what a yeah, dollar or something back then. Back yeah. then. Right. <laughs> but they were firefighters like fighting fires. They don't like sitting in the firehouse, but uh, and they liked what was going on. There's no doubt, and it's a weird juxtaposition type of thing, you mm-hmm. know. But as you said earlier, once they realized how many guys were getting hurt, then they started falling by the wayside of, right. of rooting for these guys. Right. They didn't know either. But you got 600 guys who lost a job just in Boston. The first 100 fires that they set were all in Boston. The first 100. Well, I, I have a f- hard time believing that nobody in the fire department had any idea because, I mean, Corey, it's, oh, tele- it's telephone, <laughs> right. telegraph, telefirement. Yeah. Telefirement. Telefirement. And especially these hardcore fire buff guys how could they keep uh, maybe one guy could keep it to himself right. 
but you got nine guys that are fire buffs that are setting like these, and they're not going to tell anybody. Right. Well, that's. Do I think you that find, the, don't you think that's odd? Like oh, nobody yeah. knew. I mean, that's. I that's guarantee you, somebody think, knew, right? That's where I think, like you know, and I, I'm trying to remember now. Like you start off the book with, um, with talking about the story with, uh, with you says Grobuski like waving the gun in the air. Right. Like I wonder if there weren't like seven other incidents before that same thing. You know what I mean? Even where like the, these guys were just out there just talking about their nonsense and acting like idiots and you know it was just that time that they recorded it you know but like oh, there yeah. had to be these guys oh yeah like they, they like were out there before. they were out there at all the fires yeah. and they, that's part of it right like they want that's why you guys as investigators want all that footage and the crowd footage because more than likely that guy's going to be in that crowd right Right, but in this case, we have so many fire buffs chasing fires. It's the same guys out there anyway. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could list them all as suspects. But, but to your point here, I spoke to Greg a week and a half ago, and we talked about that point again, about some of your pals knowing about this. Now, they had a group of six guys or so that were very close. They already had too many guys, according to them, who knew what was going on. They wanted to include another guy, but another, you know, like the Boston firefighter said, no, don't. You know, there's too many of us already. Don't do it. And These even other the Boston fireman was kind of on the fence, right? About wanting to be involved in it or he wasn't overly involved? He was cautious. Yeah. Uh, he's a nasty, nasty individual. He oh, was, really? Oh, yeah. People disliked him anyway, yeah. um, even his own firefighters. It was uh, whether he had mental issues or not, but he was not liked, and um, but he was cautious yeah. and shrewd still about his. He never set a fire, so he. But he was part of the conspiracy. He let them make the device in his house at times. They had meetings in his house, and he pointed out a couple buildings to burn. You know that type. Of Huh. Oh, that's interesting. But oh, yeah, so Greg, I'm 600 sorry. 600 firefighters being laid off, how can you not thank some of them? No, that's, that's what I'm saying. You know, how, <laughs> how can you, you know, I'm afraid to say that we had to think the union could be involved and trying yeah. to solve union issues. Did, did you go down that road? Not very far, yeah. because where do you go? Yeah. Well, not only are now... You got you. The fire department has lost a third of their personnel, and now they're responding to all these fires that these guys are setting. But all on top of all their regular runs that they're normally doing on a right. regular day, they're, they're I have to imagine that they're crushing these guys. Right. The on duty guys. Oh yeah, absolutely wiped out, tired. Yeah. Uh, we include in my speaking program. I have video from the fires that Nat Whittemore took. I have photos that uh, Bill Noonan, a famous fire photographer in Boston, took. But the videos, we, we kept one in there that these guys did not set. It's a six-story brick uh, commercial building that somebody else set because it was vacant. And the fire started around the third or fourth floor. And we got walls falling down almost on fire trucks. The reason we kept it in there is because they set four of the fires that night. They kept the fire department busy. By the time they got here, they're not yeah. only tired, but they get there late after the fire is well-developed. 
and they almost get crushed. I, you got brick walls coming down, and that's that's cause and effect, right? You, yes, you you could definitely hold those guys culpable for for that incident as well. That's almost exactly right. Obviously, we couldn't charge them. Yeah. So you asked earlier about how we got involved. Besides the commercial buildings, eventually we charged conspiracy to burn conspiracy under a federal statute to burn buildings, and all those vacant buildings were included in the conspiracy. Uh, we didn't have mail fraud for them. Mail fraud is for us and for profit people. If you cause your insurance company to mail to you and you mail something back to them, that's mail fraud, a federal statute. <laughs> is it? A neat way that's to that's that's that a, one. That's a stretch, don't you think? That's the Al Capone type <laughs> of guy. Right, yeah. yeah, pretty much. Get them under tax evasion. Yeah. So, um, so, Wayne, what, I mean, there's, there's probably a lot of people that, uh, there's not a lot of people listening, but there's probably a lot of people <laughs> that um, who are listening that have read this book. And I, what I think would be really cool for us to kind of go down is like, is there any new information? Or again, we've talked about how you've you've spoken to Greg since. Like, is there anything you know beyond the book that you can tell well, us? What be, uh, guys, before we get oh, to I'm that, I, I just want to ask one more question because this is exactly where we left off when we talked to him last time. Okay, is the local government was really getting on you guys and there was talk in your book that maybe some of like local government had a hand in this or they had something to do with this like can you can you talk about that well the because there were there was some there were some messed up things going on that was really messing up your investigation and it, it seemed like almost like people were trying to stop you from solving this case you know, we had a very strong mayor back then, Kevin White, um, in Boston, a lot like Chicago. You know, you have the organization that keeps selecting mayors, and, you know, he was a, an Irish mayor, and uh, he had a very strong grip on the city of Boston. And he used these guys, he used the fire department and police as pawns in the political spectrum. And they kept the money away from the fire department and stuff. So... But we had an assistant U.S. attorney who worked this case with us. We had two eventually, but Mark Robinson, he still believes today, in more than ever, in a conspiracy with the politicians who wanted to see this happening and keep it going. And they were on the city of Boston in particular. They didn't bother us feds as much, but Congress was watching it daily too. Our headquarters had to get reports every day about what was going on. And the interaction between the politicians and everything was, for the city of Boston, was overbearing. And do we solve this? Do we want it solved? Right. Do, do we want to find out if it's police or fire? You know. Yeah, and again, for, for Boston City guys, like... I mean, for all intents and purposes, when, you know, when an alderman or when a mayor or when a, uh, com uh, 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 when a local politician gets involved, they potentially have power over, again, the local fire department or, or at least have a strong, a strong influence on them relative to like Wayne's kind of outside that, you know, like the ATF is kind of outside that scope of the local politicians. So like... Uh, you guys are the ones that are kind of, I guess, above, above that. Would above you say? Afraid from yeah. that, from that portion. Well, I, I got to imagine from a local politician stance, 
because somebody burns down an abandoned building, what comes up, what gets put up right. in its place. Right. It's in their best interest for them to burn down all those yeah. abandoned buildings, right? Yeah, kill the dead. Yeah. Kill the dead uh, and grass. There, there's incentive there for these local politicians. Urban renewal. Yeah. That, that's exactly what it is. So, it, I mean, did that just add another, like, chapter to your investigation? That well, now, now we have to look inside as well? Well, you know, the Boston Globe uh, and the Boston Herald are the two main newspapers. And I, I have a Boston Globe article at home. Uh, Sunday Magazine, where they were going to do yeah. a, re- a more recent article yeah, yeah. on this case. Yeah. They had, you know, why is Boston burning? And they interviewed all sorts of neighborhood groups and civic groups. And let me tell you, the theories that were out there included exactly what you're talking about. Let's fix the city in a way that doesn't cost the city too much. But, you know, the firefighter injuries last forever, and right. they have to take care of them, and they're not thinking that, that doesn't way. figure in their equation. <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all. all. Not, yeah. at all. Yeah. not at all. But uh, so getting back to oh, yeah. your point, um, the neatest part about writing this book is feedback I get from complete strangers. Um, I never had Facebook in my life. It's Burn, Boston, Burn. It's not in the name of Wayne Miller. Uh, my LinkedIn is Burn, Boston, Burn. It's not <laughs> Wayne Miller. And, you know, I have nearly 5,000 um, friends on Facebook and 7,000-plus connections on LinkedIn. And I get feedback from a lot of these people. And a couple of them are really in-depth. I start reading one email I got. Now, my email's right on my webpage. And it starts out, my wife recently had a genealogy test. Do I have any kids out there? I'm like, oh, no. Delete, delete. Oh, no. <laughs> I knew writing this book was a bad idea. I'll put myself out there. Yeah, no, I get uh, her, uh, His... His wife, her father was Donald Stackpole, one of the arsonists. Yeah. Uh, and she didn't know about this. Really? And had she read the book prior to figuring out who her father was? No. They, they Googled like Donald Stackpole. I was going to say oh. who that guy was after. And they came up with the book, and they read the book. And how, they, would, that, that, how would you? Dude. To find out the lineage of your father through Wayne's book. Yes. Yeah. Imagine Oof. your father's a master arsonist and, and a real jerk. I was going to say, and Stackpole is kind of a he's prick not, he, too, right, he's, he? He's he, not the, the he noble one, of the, one of the group. Yeah. He's the one that said when the 22 firefighters fell through, fuck those guys because they shouldn't have been on the roof to begin with. You know? Right. Uh, you know what? I'm trying to, I'm trying to recall, but like, and this is me saying it, not you, but like <laughs> my rendition of the book is like the two real pricks out of the eight were Stackpole and, North. Oh, North. was it? Okay. The Boston yeah. firefighter. Oh, right. The two yeah. Real pricks. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Stackpole. Sorry. So, <laughs> no doubt about it. So, Stackpole's daughter so, emails you. Stackpole's so, daughter's husband emails you. Yeah. I said, I really don't have a lot more on him. Yeah. Um, I said, I could reach out to. Out of the nine, who. Greg. How many are still alive? Um, the only one I know who's deceased is Stackpole. Okay. And, and I. And, 
like what were the, the sentencing when you finally caught all these guys? Okay, Stackpole, who went to trial and lost, uh, but he, we only tried him on a 17 count rather than of, this uh, amazing. Of yes. Okay. Yeah, we didn't want to put the jury to sleep type of thing and confuse people. So uh, he got a 40-year sentence. Now, sentencing was different under federal guidelines back then. Uh, today, they're probably being there for life. Uh, Think so? Every injury adds 10 years. Oof. That'll get you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Just that October 2nd fire would put these guys away. Yes, for oh, exactly. Yeah. Now, the Boston cop came in first, and I won't go into all the details, but he got a 12-year sentence. He did just over 10 yeah, because you had a 10-year. Wow, no breaks, huh? Okay, is it a federal? Is that why he, he um, had to do most of his 12 he got, years? He already got the break by getting 12 years yeah. <laughs> because, mm. you know, it was part of this master plan. Yeah. Greg Bemis, who was the second guy really in the door, uh, Greg signed an agreement for 30 years, and but he did get out just after 10 because you did have uh, you could get out after 10, and he testified brilliantly in two trials. Uh, and he was pretty much your guys's uh, um, whatever. He pretty much flipped for you guys out of all of them, right? Like he he helped you guys out the most. Well, Grabowski helped because he did 17 undercover recordings. Oh, that really yeah. helped to turn Greg, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But, and that's uh, how you got the majority of the other guys was through those recordings, right? Because you had an idea, but now you're like, well, how, do I, how am I, I going to prove that these guys were, were involved right. like in a, in a court of law? We really had the dominoes start in the fall. Yeah. Um, we came up with more fireboxes with warrants. Uh, because people told us where they were. A couple of the other guys, the lesser guys, got like four to six years. Uh, but they rolled also. They didn't testify, but they rolled and told us more. So it just kept falling yeah. in place. I was going to say, uh, I do remember a, kind of towards the end, like all, or towards the end of the book, like that every guy got like a different weird sentence. Like nobody really got the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, because you guys had to establish for each individual their level of involvement, right? right? Right. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories brought to you by Rescue One CBD, a firefighter-owned company taking care of first responders with their CBD oil that's guaranteed to be 0.000% THC, making it safe for the job. Enter promo code BRAVEST and you'll receive 25% off your order. Again, type in the promo code BRAVEST and you'll get 25% off all Rescue One products. Go to rescueonecbd.com and place your order. If you're having trouble sleeping or you have some aches and pains, CBD oil has been a game changer for me. Go to rescueonecbd.com and place an order. Like Lenny Kendall was Greg's best friend. They grew up as called firefighters. Uh, they worked for, like, dispatch for local small-town PD and fire department. And Lenny was present for the first two fires. But he went into the Air Force the next day. No kidding. He had already signed up, and so he went to boot camp and all this stuff. And he went into the Air Force and became a firefighter in the Air Force. No kidding. Until we arrested him. And uh, That's gonna get you. he was part of the conspiracy, <laughs> and he, he's the only one out of eight, uh, nine guys that did not go to prison. He got probation, but he got drummed out of the Air Force, and he lives in Texas now, I think. Um, 
Rablusi lives in Massachusetts. Oh, he's still alive, huh? Yeah, he seemed like he was he one of the older old. guys. No, oh, no. Norton's still alive. He's he was the oldest. Oh, really? Stackpole died uh, only a few years after he got out of prison. Died, I think, suddenly. I think you talked about that in the book, right? Yeah, he had died right at that point. Um, Ray Norton. Now, he, you wanted to know about some additional information. Yeah, an email, the longest email I've ever gotten in my life. Ooh. Longer than Corey's to get you I here? I was going to say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it didn't. Mine had pictures, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's what lured away. <laughs> and from, from another stranger, a, a kid who grew up a couple houses away from Norton's house. This kid's father was a firefighter and Norton's best friend. Huh. And this kid said, I remember when I was like 10 or 12, they put me in the back seat. Norton would be driving. My dad would be in the front seat. And I, I, I don't know his name, okay? He didn't send it with his name. And there were two other guys I could not identify. I don't know them in the back seat. Two men. He says this, yeah. And we drove to the Bronx, New York. And we'd loop a block. We'd drop a guy off. We'd loop a block, pick a guy up. Huh. We'd loop the block. There'd be a fire. Okay? That's one thing. But... I don't know if you recall, but Ray Norton is got convicted as a pedophile uh, at like 70 years old. And we had suspicions because he had a lot of young teen, young 10 to 14-year-old oh, right. boys. While you were uh, investigating. Yes. Yeah. And we, we interviewed yeah, yeah. a couple of them, and they never told us anything. But you got to realize, 1980s, a lot of people wouldn't come out and tell you that they're being... Very different world yeah. Very yeah. different. Yeah. Especially Boston, too. As a matter of fact, this kid who, I call him a kid, he's probably 50 years old now, <laughs> but he was very upset with himself because he explained in great horrific detail in his email what went on with Ray Norton at Ray Norton's house. Oh, my God. And um, he is ashamed of himself and angry at himself for not preventing it Ray Norton got convicted many years later for not preventing it happening to other people. And I, I did respond to him almost like a psychiatrist. I said, yeah. look, it was a different time. Uh, yeah, I and mean, what people, do you even say, Wayne? Ray Norton would put his arm around his father's shoulders, looking right at the kid and say, your dad's my best friend. So yeah, well, in crazy. other words, your dad's not going to believe you. Yeah, And when the dad wasn't present, Ray Norton said, I'm going to burn your house down with you and your parents in it if you ever tell anybody. Yeah. So you imagine you're 10, 12 years old. He's a child, yeah. You yeah. know? So, and this guy actually did it too, you know? You know, so, uh, you know, I tried to tell the kid. Oh. And uh, that's the type of emails. Um, you know, Barnes and Nobles, a woman who works the true crime section said, I am enamored with your book. I keep buying them from my store, and they keep selling. Huh. <laughs> and uh, I love, you know, I heard you write the second book, and I'd love to help you, whatever, promote that second yeah. book. And she's just a very friendly person. Yeah, well, you know what I, I liked about your book? It was an easy read. Yeah. You know, it was easy. And once you, once you start getting into it, those are the good books that, that keep you, like, you know, I got shit to do, but... <laughs> so going through One the more. Book, yeah. yeah, I've had dozens of fire people in particular who said, I hardly ever read. 
I picked your book up on Friday, and I finished it by Sunday night because I didn't go to bed. <laughs> it's 480 freaking pages. It's not a short story. I was say, it definitely is a short book. <laughs> you know, it weighs over a pound. Yeah. You know, when you talk about putting a federal case together, <laughs> this is a federal case. What is there stuff that, because of uh, constraints of not having a five-pound book, is there anything that you really pushed to get it in there in between you and maybe the publisher and stuff like that didn't make it in the book? Now, remember, I self-published. Oh, that's right. That's so right. There's 20,000 less words than my original document, and that's the <laughs> only thing that shortened it. Uh, <laughs> we did have an editor, and we shortened it by 20,000. Right. I, rem I remember we talked about Too that. Too many words. Yeah. But uh, no, um, virtually everything that I could think of at the time and that I had records for and that I could come up with and interviewed people, more people have come up and said, this is another neat thing. I grew up in that neighborhood. I remember that. And if I wish I could have known some of these stories yeah. and added them to the book. Um, you know, my dad was a firefighter. I saw him on your video. Huh. He's been dead for 10 years now. But oh, I saw him on your yeah. video. He's yeah. on that ladder on fighting that fire. Um, stories like this. Um, the Wahlbergs grew up right in Dorchester, right in the middle of this during that time period, you know. Mark and Donnie and Paul and uh, the whole family was there. And people, uh, a woman from the Boston Globe said, I grew up there. We moved the trash away from the house, thinking that people were setting the trash on fire, catching yeah. the house. And we moved the trash away from the house. We were in fear. I love this stuff. Yeah. And I mean, you've, you've captured a, a, a part of Boston history with, with that book. Like, th that was something that the, the residents of Boston just... Like in Chicago uh, during the the Tylenol right. thing, you know, it, it for those people who grew up in that era, that that's like a part of our our, our culture now, mm -hmm. right? So, as as amazing of that as that book was, let's talk uh, about. But before we move on to that book, let's take a break. Uh, your whiskey seems to be empty, and so does Corey's. Oh, yeah. I, I think I'm the weak one here. Yeah, but we're, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about the new book. Yeah, we got to get paid, Vince. <laughs> <laughs> we got bills, baby. We got bills. <laughs> Commercials. <laughs> we're commercial guys now. Wayne, I didn't tell you. Okay, well, we're back from our commercial, nice. and uh, our uh, traditional refilling of the, of the yeah. beverages. Yeah. Uh, we kind of left off. We were going to go into the new book, but um, you, what was the, what, what prompted you to write a second book? And this is far removed from the first one. They're, they're standalone books, but this new book is a compilation of short stories, which I think is awesome of like the kind of the cool stories uh, within your career. So what, what prompted you? Did you just enjoy doing the first book so much that you wanted to include all the other stuff that didn't fall into that category? Writing a book is fun for me. Yeah. Uh, the words flow. Um, the second book is very different in a lot of ways because there's 21 individual stories. I had to research a lot of these stories differently. For Burn, Boston, Burn... I had a lot of material. I could find a lot of material. These stories, I had to research individually different cases. Yeah. And did you, did you, but, was it hard for you to, 
to do these stories because was there a lot of red tape involved in um, like uh, just legal aspects of these stories, like what you couldn't say, what you could say, you, you know, uh, letting in, um, you know, maybe some investigative uh, avenues that are only privy to the federal government and stuff like that? No, there were no bounds on me in a sense, and I was very careful about certain issues. Um, certain cases um, that didn't make it to trial, that didn't make it to an arrest even. So I wouldn't use, like one case, we had two school teachers who got arrested and tried for burning their investment property. I did not use the This names. is an arson for money. Yes, case, right? arson for profit. Um, um, you know what? I'm sorry. Let's, sure. uh, can we back it up? So the new book is called what? Bang, Boom, Burn. It doesn't roll off the tongue like burn, uh, roll off the tongue like burn, Boston, burn. <laughs> Bang, boom, burn. I almost wanted to have like exclamation points. <laughs> I like it. You know what? Because it's, it's three simple words for idiot <laughs> firemen that they know what they're getting into right. is exactly that. More yeah. bees than any author. Yeah. Right. Consistently. <laughs> Consistently. Consistently more bees. It is. Um, this is a, you do like a series. So if I'm going to do a third, I'm going to have to come up with three bees. Yeah, you are. You are. Okay. So nobody's uh, going to know what your book is if barns, it doesn't have bees. Bitches and, <laughs> so, by Wayne Miller. Um, and and bang boom burn. That's again like Vince was saying earlier. It's a compilation of short stories, real quick, uh, where you're kind of going through the path of of a bunch of different investigations that you personally were a part of. Of these every are, one of these, right? Every one of these. Yeah. Now. The subtitle, Explosive True Crime, Gun, Bombing, and Arson Cases from a Federal Agent's Career. Like, you know, the editor and stuff said, not from an ATF agent's career, because some people don't know what ATF is, you know, so say Federal Agent. Now, the bang stands for the gun cases. On on the cover, we have an M16 on top. We have uh, a burning building with an amazing photo. That building is significant. Given to me, this is... This was the Worcester Warehouse fire on December 3rd, 1999. We lost uh, six Worcester firefighters, so it's, it's called the Worcester Six. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not written out as six. It's a numeral six. So as a writer, anytime you have a number below 10, you write it out normally. In that chapter, every time the number six is there, it is a numeral, not written out. Hmm. in honor of the six firefighters. And I wrote that chapter, and it touches my heart dearly because I have so much respect for firefighters. And when I was, I think it was the Indiana or Wisconsin, earlier this year, I'm walking down the aisles, and I'm talking about that fire. And I think you can already hear me changing. But... There were parts to that story that just make me break down. And I did in the middle of that conference. I had to walk back down the aisle, away from the group, and compose myself. Um, it's not real professional in a sense, but it shows I have a heart, yeah. you know. But this photograph here by Roger Conant, um, he let me have this photograph. And it, uh, he could have charged 
a lot of money for this photo. It looks, the flames above the building look exactly like a firefighter with a helmet on and almost like his arm is out, maybe, you know, like holding something like an ax. It does. I didn't notice that at first. It looks exactly like a firefighter. Did you notice that, Corey? The helmet? The arm? And that is real. That is not touched up whatsoever. Huh. Roger let me use that for my presentation starting way back in 2000. So we could see you getting emotional about talking about that fire in particular. Other than your respect for firefighters, what what your investigation into that, that you you have some obvious emotional attachment to that investigation. Yep. Um, Worcester's about 20 miles from my house. I saw it. They broke into the evening programming on TV on a Friday evening. And I called my supervisor and I responded to the fire. There was nothing I was going to be able to do that particular night. And... I stood in this parking lot directly across as watching it. And it took eight days to recover the six bodies, the remnants of the six bodies. This was a six-story building that collapsed down onto the second floor. And they had to remove items carefully along the way, evidentiary purposes, and try and recover their brothers. Looking at the Worcester firefighters' faces, and they stayed on the deck. They worked this second-floor deck, and firefighters from all over New England came to assist, sifting, looking for buttons, etc., from their firefighters. And there was a piece of uh, uh, there's an engine parked nearby that was draped with flowers and signs. And this is part of one of my large loss fire presentations. And when I get, I was there and watching certain things. And I don't want to tell you everything, but there's some things that, if you believe in divine intervention, happened during that week that we were there. And, um, you know, when I look at those pictures of the notes on the fire truck, firefighters saved my child. God bless all firefighters. It just tears me apart. There's a fantastic book out there, but 3,000 Degrees. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the author's names, but 3,000 Degrees, because they say that the temperatures got to that, which I still doubt, but... Um, they don't get quite that high. I don't care what condition you have. But um, it really gets into the each of these six firefighters, their interactions with their families, with other firefighters, and it brings them to life, and it talks about that night, and it absolutely rips my heart out again, and it just hurts. What got the federal government to get involved in that fire? Well, again, loss of life, large loss, uh, still a commercial building, even so it was uh, vacant. Did you, did you ha- the, explain the, how it works? Do you have to ask, hey, can we be involved in this? Do you have to wait for them to come and, and bring you in or request your services? How, how does that process go? Because, you know, you're only 20 you know, miles away. I, I would imagine that you have a vested interest in getting to the bottom of this. Uh, Worcester is the second largest city in New England, and um, 
you know, I worked with the state fire marshal back then regularly. I worked with Worcester. I knew a lot of the guys uh, in the fire investigation unit. And they didn't invite me, but for the national response team, they did not want the team in particular. They welcomed me. The state fire marshals had custody and control of the investigation. I had no problems with that because it wasn't going federally anyway if it if a crime was committed. And, um, you know, I assisted them because I had, by 1999, I had 1,500 fires under my belt and so much training and stuff. And uh, we had a couple ATF guys total working it. But um, the entire fire marshal's office was involved. The Worcester Fire Investigation Unit was totally involved. So um, I was one of the three people that wrote the final report on okay. this case. And, and what, was, what was your determination of that fire ultimately? In the report, it talks about a candle that was knocked down, knocked over by two homeless people that were in there. And what does your gut tell you? The female, they were boyfriend and girlfriend for a long time. As a matter of fact, she was pregnant. Their IQ was very low. She was 15 years younger than he was. She was pregnant by him. And they survived the fire. They left knowing there was a fire and did not report it to anybody. And when I talk about this fire in a class, she went back that night to get a couple of her belongings and her puppy, which was in the second floor where they had made their bedroom. And he wanted to fool around. And this is a fact. He wanted to fool around. She did not. At some point, she was leaving that room, according to her information. I think he knocked the candle over or used it intentionally. Imagine a 1999 cell phone, which he might have had, some sort of flip phone or something. There's not virtually any light. You're in a building here in December in New England. It's pitch black by 4.30. This fire happened shortly after 5. It's pitch black, and it's boarded up, and there's no light whatsoever. And it's a maze to get in and out of this building. How do they get out if they only had that one candle in the room? I think he not used it to set fire and said to his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, Screw you and your little dog, too. I'm the one that found a dog and a kitten huddled in the corner of that building. I saw so many amazing things from those firefighters, the guts of those firefighters, the strength of those firefighters. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life, you know? And that's the last story in there. If it doesn't touch your heart, you're a cold stone person. Yeah, the um, the Worcester, the what? I'm sorry. Say sorry, Worcester. 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 Make him say it right, would Worcester. you, Wayne? Worcester. 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 <laughs> he, he has been messing that up since <laughs> we got in here. Um, the Worcester Fire is one of um, one of our famous firefighter um, 
I, I guess, infamous, famous firefighting uh, incidents that um, they'll teach about in the academy. It's like that, the MGM Grand, um, One Meridian Plaza, which which you were at too. Um, a lot of these famous fires where uh, there'll be nice reports on like uh, after a firefighter death or injury where they'll talk about things that we could do, we could have done to change, you know, which is probably nonsense in itself. It's very easy to, we've talked about before, Monday morning quarterback, what could have happened. And, and, um, but, but again, it's a pretty, pretty famous fire for all counts. Um, could you describe, not that I want to sit too long on this, but, um, the Worcester fire is a, it's a cold storage building or cold storage building, okay. uh, almost a hundred years old where cold yeah. storage was. It had 18 inch thick masonry walls yep. because they stored meat and stuff in there before you had refrigeration. They used ice and it was broken up into lots of individual rooms mm-hmm. and you could get lost in the daytime. There, yeah. You know, and then right. mine in the middle of a fire with the smoke and everything else. Right. And um, it must have been a nightmare in there, huh? Yeah. I think that's what ended up happening. They ended up getting lost. You just there get was, turned around. Staircase, yeah. I think. Chief McNamara had the courage and the balls that you can hardly imagine in a person. When he lost the six, he physically blocked the stairway, refusing to let any of his other guys who really wanted to continue to find these guys. Yeah. We lost six. I'm not going to lose any more. And he must be tormented. Um, I know 10 years uh, or 20 years after the fact, they interviewed him and stuff. And it still has to tear at his heart. Um, Well, he lost an entire company. Yeah. 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 And and for you as a, I mean, knock on wood, I've, I've never had to be a part of an investigation where there's been a firefighter death. And I hope I never have to. Um, And uh, I, I, couldn't even imagine the uh, what the emotions were going on when you walked up having to you know again addressing addressing a, a scene that needed examination and these guys already know that their that their guys are gone and now you have to walk into the scene and try and figure out like the pressure to to figure out what caused this fire at that time i couldn't even imagine i mean anything you could to describe any of that or you know when we finally got in there after again eight days before they recovered the last firefighter remains so you guys hadn't done any type of investigation prior to that or or did they interview once they located and found out about the two homeless people those they were interviewed but not by me okay but by a friend of mine who was a state fire marshal sure trooper and the Part of the problem was the, the DA's office arrested them like four days after the fire. Um, they would never have been arrested in Massachusetts if it was just the building had burned. But they charged them with manslaughter and this and that. But there's no reporting law still to this day in Massachusetts. You do not have to report. You can walk away after seeing this fire. You don't have to report it. I, I think there should be a reporting law. But... Um, whether or not you started it. Yes, for any reason. Um, but the fire marshals, as each bucket 
of debris was removed as a delayering process. You can remember six floors collapsed onto the second. Now, the reason it stayed on the second was because that was a concrete deck. The other ones were wood. And firefighters were next to the building, sifting hour after hour, day after day for eight freaking days. And fire marshals kept track of anything found at that point. I still was standing, waiting for my turn. My turn came after they cleared the scene for right. Yeah, Vince, this is the one, I'm sorry, this is the one, this fire is the one where they, um, NIOSH recommended, which is probably nonsense itself, they they recommended the use of, like, the tagline thing. Do you ever see that, the the, oh, yeah. the rope, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the tagline where you set it and you go around, and that works yeah. every time, right? Well, uh, <laughs> you see a lot of guys now put that in their The their, personal their rope bag, yeah. yeah. You know, you know a, a carabiner and, you know, clip it at the door. Exactly, yeah. and you have the knot at every 50 feet or yeah. whatever you set yeah, up yeah. for yourself. You know, I... I don't know what's out there, but, you, you know, you think about could you have a chip in your helmet or in the groin of your bunker gear? Um, a 3D. It has to be 3D because what floor? They didn't know what floor no. they were on when the first two guys said, we're running out of air. You know, and that's heartbreaking for everybody. You mm-hmm. know, we're buddy breathing. Buddy breathing for you people that don't know is you're sharing the last of the oxygen from the tank you have. And then you get no response back on the radio. Uh, and then you send two guys in for a rapid intervention type of team. Try to find... It was just two guys with the RIT team? <laughs> they sent two guys in initially. Had no idea what floor they were on. No nothing. Um, because... And this almost predates, I want to say, 99, right? Is this is 99. Yeah, this might actually predate RIT teams, you know? Yeah, it was. That's true. Okay. And then the modern, the modern, what we would call now a red team. Right. Two guys went in without permission uh, because they wanted to find these guys. Um, so um, I didn't want to retell the story. That 3,000 degrees tells a great story. Yeah. I just wanted to put it in, in respect for these guys. Something I worked that was horrific that really touches me. And I wanted to show the readers through my eyes what I saw, what I felt. So it really is that. I saw some things that other people saw, maybe not the same way I saw it. Right. Uh, Things that, again, science can't explain some of the things I saw. (laughs) It's like divine intervention. Well, save save those for the book. Yeah, um, and you know what? And that's the thing. Like, we could sit here. I could talk to you all day about about this one fire, and we've got like five other things we want to talk to you about that I don't want. Yeah, to let's miss. let's um, let, you know, let's let's leave some to the imagination. Let's for sure. let some people uh, get to that end of the book and and find out what all those divine interventions were. For sure, I've got a. I've what do you want to move on to next? This. So, um, I, I I was thinking about the Waco. You want to go there? Uh, I got a I got a lead in for um so uh let's see here uh February 23rd 1991 uh Is that the police officer? Nope. Um we've got uh three line of duty deaths um Philadelphia uh we do you want to does this is this bringing you back what fire is this? 
This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Sports and Ortho Physical Therapy. I'm here with Dahlia Fami, owner of Sports and Ortho Physical Therapy, where they specialize in rehabilitation of police and fire. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Vince. How are you? Thanks for having me back. So what do or what can our members do to come in and see you guys? Really easy, Vince. They just call us up and make an appointment. So, and I can guarantee they won't be disappointed. And usually people definitely learn a lot about their bodies while they come see us. Uh, Sports and Ortho is a private practice specializing in the care of police and fire members. You can look them up at sportsandortho.net. Call them to make an appointment. Dahlia, thanks again for being here. One last question for you. What if it's a work injury? That's a good question. So you can still ask for us. We're part of the City of Chicago Workers' Compensation Network. So there should be no issues if we are requested. Thanks, Dahlia, for being here and educating us about the importance of prevention. Always a pleasure, Vince. Thanks. Sure. Meridian. Yeah. Plus a Meridian Bank building, I call it. That was, uh, that was in 91? Uh, yeah. So there's a lot going on in 91. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a ton this guy's going. got 15 plates spinning. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're talking in the Wall Street of downtown Philadelphia. And this is a 32-story high-rise. And the amazing thing is it's sprinkled, grandfathered in from the 30th floor above. So the lower 29 are not sprinkled. Mm. Okay. And that fire, which is not really in the book, I think I'd mention it. Um, That fire occurred because there was a crew uh, putting staining cherry wood walls in the lawyer's office on, I think, a 20 or 21st floor Saturday. Not really anybody in the building except for this people down the security type of thing. And when the Philadelphia Fire Department rolled that night to this call after 5 or 6 o'clock at night, they had cameras on the truck, kind of unusual. And it showed like a center window on the 21st floor on fire. And then to the right, as you're approaching... One window, and then another window, and another window. Not to the left, to the right. This thing burned uncontrolled. They had a hard time. They had to walk up. You know, they had to try to get water out of the, the stairwells and stuff. And they had a hard time. And the three firefighters died like on the twenty seventh or eighth floor. I'm sorry, I don't know exactly. Uh, but I was in the room where they died, and they. Again, the respect for firefighters. They radioed down saying, we're running out of air. Can we break a window? Now, you're talking a 20-something floor, breaking a major window to people down below and everything else and how it would interact with the fire. And they didn't get permission to break the window, and they died in that room for lack of oxygen. And... Um, you could see where they died. You could see the hand marks on the wall. And we were, they did not invite the national response team. Philadelphia wanted to do it themselves. 
but they had enough rapport with the local agents that I was invited. And again, I co-wrote the Origin Cause report on this one. And um, we had eight or nine floors completely burned out. And the sprinkler system put the fire out on the 30th. And we're walking on floors with the you know concrete floors with rebar and the, that we're walking up three feet, four feet, and down. It you got know. that hot? It, it, These waves of the floor just warped wow. completely. And uh, we worked our way back. Now, obviously, when you're looking at a camera view live, you only see one elevation of the building. The fire patterns almost all look the same. And there wasn't a lot of this arc mapping going on back then. And this, in a building like that, you've got so many different um, wiring systems that it would have been next to impossible to say what happened first. But we went back to where that room was. And the guys who were doing that work using linseed oil, which is a known self combusting material right you it, can't put a rag you can't throw a, a rag in the garbage can that's covered in linseed i've oil. had many yeah. i've had a, at least a half a dozen fires in my career yeah with that uh these guys said we threw rags in the dumpster and we found like three or four rags in the dumpster or you spend all day long staining law office walls uh using linseed oil on this uh, cherry wood walls or something. And um, that's the only rags you used and threw them away. I'm not sure when those rags got in the dumpster. Uh, you know, but... Or what other things are in that dumpster, like, you know, like wood shavings or whatever else from right. doing the woodwork. Yeah. We went to that room, and the reason the fire went to the right is because that's all the rooms they did that day, and all the doors are open to air them. The ones to the right, the doors were closed, and they weren't done. And that's symbolic of how that fire traveled, the fire dynamics. In the room of origin, we got on our hands and knees, and we found charred piles of rags, which were sent to the laboratory, and they came back positive for linseed oil. That's where they stored everything at the end of that day, was in that one room. So... Uh, horrific fire and you know eventually I mean the firefighter deaths are enough but eventually that building was taken down really imagine 32 story in Wall Street type of section of a a city being taken down because of this fire um, yeah so this book is unusual anyway this bang stands for gun cases I had a handful of gun cases, uh, 46 well, you did gun You did cases. more gun cases in the beginning of your career, right? From 76 to 80 is when I did gun cases. Well, it, I, I want to double-check the timeline here because I know you wanted to do origin and cause, and you went to you started getting into that in 1981, and 10 years later you show up f for this fire. Does Did that origin and cause... Those classes that you took then, did you were able to directly apply them to your investigations in 91? Oh, by, by 91, I, probably, I 
had several hundred hours worth of training. Yeah. In the National Fire Academy, State Fire Academy, IAAI classes, uh, ATF classes every single year. Once you got certified, I was certified by 88 um, from that first CFI class that ATF had. Um, you had to be recertified every single year by at least 25 fires and continued training. Well, Corey, do you, does that sound like a, like an accelerated program in 10 years? You think somebody out here has as much experience in 10 years oh. with, with, you know, in 10 years he's had hundreds of fires and yeah. he's investigated right. so many I hours. Mean, that's, that's an accelerated program, right? It, what he did back then is actually so much more than what guys are doing now. Like, I mean, the ATF, the ATF's commitment to fire investigation is bananas. Yeah. Like, there's kids, and, and you could attest this too, like, there's kids that will maybe have a couple years on the job. I know when I, you know, I only had a couple years as a fireman on the job before I became a fire investigator. And, like, a, a, like a public sector fire investigator could have relatively little training as little as three weeks of fire investigation training before you would show up to a fire investigation. And he has and to have, like, a, uh, what was it, uh, 160 hours before he can even take the, yeah, the class. Right, exactly. Like, he's he's a fire investigator <laughs> before he's a fire investigator. Yeah. You know, like, it's 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 nuts. Like, again, the commitment that the ATF, and, I mean, we've, I think we talked about on the last podcast, like, not a lot of people realize that, you know, again, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, like, that's kind of what everyone thinks that the ATF is about, but, like, they're one of the, they're, they're almost, you know, if not the highest level, one of the highest levels of what an investigation could become when we get the ATF involved. Um, again, if it's, uh, what are, and, and not to distract too much from what's going on, but like, why, why would a municipal, why would my town with me as a fire investigator, when do I reach out to the ATF, Wayne? Well. Generally. If an ATF agent doesn't have a rapport with the town already, you could call on ATF, again, if it's a commercial building mm -hmm. in particular, or even if you had a loss of life and a high-dollar loss yep. uh, building. So if it wasn't even commercial. I mean, ATF guys, I work. Lots of fires that weren't commercial buildings. Um, I worked at house I've fire. definitely reached out to them as um, as a resource, uh, as a friendly resource. But like, there's times though, Wayne, right? Where like, I mean, what happens when a church goes out? Do I have to call you? No, oh. <laughs> I don't know if it's still the same today. I know when I was on the job that it was automatic. ATF had to investigate every church fire exactly. because there were so many of them going on. Yeah, if, if a church goes up, if a liquor store goes up, uh, what else, Wayne? What else am I missing? What if, uh, what if someone was drinking alcohol and smoking <laughs> a cigarette in a gun store? <laughs> is ATF obligated to go to this fire? Is it? We're talking a tobacco cigarette, right? <laughs> of course, not of a course. marijuana cigarette. Because no. listen, they're, marijuana they're, outside ATF, it's only tobacco. They're drinking Can't be tobacco. marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a funny thing about that, Corey. Yeah. Uh, on the private side, more later on in my career, uh, uh, you started. You had to ask that question. 
you don't just ask, does anybody here smoke? Because a lot of people just talk about the cigarettes sure. or uh, that type of tobacco type things. Come on. I'm in Maine and I got a fire in Maine. And I said to the guy, do you smoke? And he said, not cigarettes. He said, I am the president of the uh, Maine, Massachusetts, I mean, Maine Marijuana Society. <laughs> and yes. That's quite a, it's a very, very specific society. <laughs> and I said, did you smoke pot that day? He said, yes, but I can't remember exactly where I walked around with it because I, th oh boy. I think... Did you tell him that that's not your jurisdiction? <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't care about that. I said, yes, yes, absolutely. I could care less about that. These guys keep on skirting the system. <laughs> I think he walked over to the area of his house. He wasn't, he was staying with his girlfriend. He only went there because it was wintertime and he had some um, portable heaters aiming under the sink to keep the pipes from freezing, that type of thing. Okay. But he walked over to another area of his house. He, he was a collector of posters, movie posters and stuff, and he would sell them. And they were all posters and cardboard boxes sticking out. And he walked over to that area, and I think, uh. an ash, just an ash. And now people might say, an ash? Well, let me tell you. We had a kid who was smoking a cigarette who worked for my private company that I was working with. Mm -hmm. And he was on his deck and he was in the house later on and he smelled some smoke and he looked all over the place and couldn't find anything and then an hour later he smelled it a little stronger and he looked over again and he saw the mulch below his deck which he didn't throw his cigarette he only flicked the ashes into the mulch and it was now like an 18 inch charred area Oof. that was producing that smoke it was just smoldering away but imagine up on a deck several feet above and you're dropping it into the mulch and it got the mulch going. Well, now we're talking lighter weight material posters in a cardboard box. So it can oh. happen. <laughs> you know. um, well, I don't want to miss anything. What else we got, Vinny? Well, I, I'm just thinking ATF, you're basically describing every trailer park. <laughs> right? No, yeah, yeah. You got, I mean, you ever gone to, you ever even heard of a trailer park that didn't have alcohol, tobacco, or a firearm? In, in each yeah. trailer. Right. <laughs> and right. I, Wayne, unprompted, just so you know, unprompted, <laughs> Wayne told me about a half dozen double wide stories. You, I mean, he's an ATF here. agent. I mean, right. you, you're going to cross this is, paths. Yeah. This is, this is where we're at. <laughs> I was, I was worried about where you're staying, like being close to Mannheim road. And I'm like, who am I talking he's to? He's going to be yeah, comfortable. He knows. <laughs> well, let's wrap it up with a, uh, before we started recording, we were kind of talking about, um, that, uh, you have a connection with the Waco raid with David Koresh and Corey, you you didn't realize that that was an ATF raid. No idea. And it, you saw like that 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 tank thing that goes that went in there, and the guys that were getting shot up on the roof and stuff. Those were all ATF ATF guys. Yeah, yeah. We lost four right. agents on that horrific day. And you knew a bunch of those guys on that raid, right? Well, I I knew one who became a uh, certified fire investigator who fell off the roof and broke his hip. I also knew I trained 
uh, one of the guys who got killed. Um, he was in one of my classes. And here's a weird thing. Um, I received a sketch, a large sketch, maybe two feet by three feet, and it's hanging at my house. It's an abstract of uh, three angels holding a limp body. And um, it's a long story. My biological dad, who I didn't meet again until I was 44 years old, um, presented me with this. And that limp body was the agent that I trained. And his sister did that sketch. And uh, I see it several times a week. And uh, I think about those guys. Yeah. Um, yes, there's a lot of screw-ups in that case. And um, they didn't have to do some of the things they did. Uh, and, you know, the FBI took over afterwards and the big fire that occurred afterwards and everything. And it was an insane event all the way around. As I was saying, just um, just so people have a little background, because I had to kind of um, I had to kind of refresh myself on it. Um, we're talking. Um, it, it looks like it, it the Waco siege or the Waco massacre, it's sometimes referred to, is um, it occurred between February twenty eighth and April nineteenth in uh, ninety three, and that's where um, David Crush, like you were talking about, Vince, he. What was his What was his crew? The it says here the Branch Davidians. The, yeah, the Branch Davidians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they were they were all kind of holed up there, right? Well, he was he was story? touting himself as the Messiah, like he was like basically saying he was Jesus Christ. Okay. And, you know, it was a cult for all intents and purposes. He he was running a cult and he had a call to arms and uh, they they I think it, they originally went in there just to remove the children and stuff like that. The original uh, thing was they knew he had firearms. There was an actual undercover in the house, uh, in the compound. Really? Yes. Wow. And they knew he had guns, and uh, they were going to arrest him for gun violations. Um, And, yes, they wanted to, during that whole siege, during the time period between the raid and the fire, um, it was a long standoff. Yeah, they thirty they, something days. Uh, the, longer. Than right, that's what it says. The, it the says. federal government really tried to not go down this road that yep. it ultimately ended up going down. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, February twenty eighth through April nineteenth. Yeah, so it's almost it's two, almost months. two months. Yeah. yeah. Now remember, April nineteenth, how famous a day that is. You right. Know, you, know, you know what that's all about. That whole thing. So did he time it for this to finally come to fruition on that day? Because April 19th is also the start of the American Revolution. Um, that's Marathon Monday in Boston, typically. I was going to say, that's, that's Boston knowledge right there. That just flows off the tongue in when you <laughs> grow up in Boston. But there's other things. There's things relating to Hitler. There's things relating to all huh. sorts of other things around that time period. I mean, I don't know. I, I, could, could that just be a, a, the strangest coincidence known to man? Um, I'm not sure. Well, did you have anything to do, um, did you form any opinions or anything like that, or were you involved in anything to do with the, uh, the 
the Boston Marathon bombing? Did you uh, get a maybe consult or even like dive into that a little bit? You know, I was off the job by at least 15 yeah, years. Yeah, but you're all, you're always in ATF. I mean, look, <laughs> look you're 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 in your ATF uh, yeah. shirt right now like you, right. you, you that and it still fits. It's in it's it's in Boston. <laughs> you know, they came to your hometown. They you you had to want to get involved a little bit, right? I had one foot in the pickup truck. Now <laughs> I still have ATF jackets because they don't want them back after you wear them and stuff like that and I never threw them away. Um, I had my retirees badge and, you know, I talked to the guys afterwards and they said, you could have easily gotten past the first perimeter and we would have welcomed you to help out. But, uh, you know, with the FBI and fire marshals and Boston and, uh, you know, I just didn't make that final move and, yeah. and go. I'm sure you kept a, kept a finger on the pulse though, right? Kind of got some info, yeah. Uh, let me tell you, the press on that case, from minute to minute. Nuts, right? Because there was a lock, lockdown in certain areas and stuff like that, was intense. Um, it was one of the most closely followed crime stories in history. Oh, yeah, I bet. I mean, I remember watching it as yeah. it unfolded on TV when yeah. they actually caught the guy. They, they, it was broadcast live. Right. You know, the guy in the boat? You know, they, they're was shooting was going one on. guy or the two guys. They no, just got his, so, his brother got killed. Oh, that's what it was. Right. Yeah. When the MIT police officer was killed that day. Oh, and uh, yeah, uh, another horrific story. I mean, you know, they tipped the death penalty like off the table after he was given the death penalty. And it's still being debated whether he's going to get it or not but you know it ends up being how many more years afterwards already and it's going to go on and on he was he was yes he's a youngster and did he follow his older brother did he not have his own mind in a sense yeah um, um, why did they do it i mean they were here in america and they had a much better life in america than they ever had right any place else and well, the, uh, the one brother was a religious zealot he was trying to doctrinate his his younger brother, who was more Americanized apparently than he was. That's correct. He was going he was going to college and he, yeah. uh, one of the UMass uh, uh, subsidiary schools. Yeah. and he, he was a typical college because he smoked pot with his friends. Right, and right. He was completely Americanized. Yeah, and he's the one who's uh, who's awaiting. Yeah. You know, his yeah, 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 Life or death, but either way, he's not getting out. Star of that movie, National Treasure, right? <laughs> I can't believe it only came up one time. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Marky Mark, huh? Again, in this, in Bang, Boom, Burn, I just want to touch on the bombing cases that I have there. Yeah. Um, you know, the bang is for the gun cases. I had that 46 machine gun case and a couple undercover things that are kind of weird. Uh, the boom is for the two bombing cases, and the burn is for about a dozen arson cases that are in here. But the bombing cases... One was a Boston police officer who was on the bomb squad who got killed looking at a device, potential device. And it's such a strange story. And it's, uh, you can find it on the internet. And I, I direct people towards that. There is a, a whole thing trying to get uh, the manufacturer of the bomber out of prison. He's been in prison since 92. And um, as 
recent as May, he was still, first it was up for possible COVID release. And then, yeah, I know. And then he was up, he shouldn't have been getting a life sentence under certain statutes. So they took the life sentence away. They gave it back to him. And now it's been taken away again. He's got a 41-year sentence, which would get him out in about another six or eight years, but it'll be like 70-something years old. I let the readers on several of these cases decide for themselves. I give them the facts, the best I could present to them in the period of time that I allotted for each story. And some of the Austin cases, people got acquitted. Should they have been acquitted? I gave them the facts. It's up to you readers to decide whether this bomber is guilty or not. And you can go look online. Now, being Monday morning quarterbacking and presenting all this other stuff, a lot of it's not factual evidence, but yet people bring it up. There's a 571-page book out there about this guy's innocence. About his innocence. Yes. And you can read that if you wish. And this guy was convicted for this? Convicted multiple times in a sense because he appealed and then the conviction was upheld and appealed. So in a court of law, he's not innocent at all. That's correct. And remember something. When a court of law says you're not guilty, that doesn't mean you are innocent. And that comes up in an arson murder trial that I had in another case. It's in here. A woman arsonist. Yeah. In my mind. There's not too many uh, women arsonists, are there? Uh, probably one out of every hundred. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, um, you know, and most of those would be because, uh, you know, Mary's angry at John. Scorned lovers? Yeah, that type. Yeah. Uh, this one here was a little more in-depth. Yeah. I, 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 I might have one out of 100 sitting in my house right now. <laughs> she, she's waiting to burn my stuff up. I got you. Uh, I, I, well, Wayne, I've, yeah. I'll tell you right now, I've beat those odds like yeah. crazy. <laughs> right. right. I, you know, I, I was going to say Vince probably. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, again, I I can't tell you. This guy, this guy not only not only an acclaimed author, but an incredible human being. Um, Wayne Miller. Well, tell again. everybody what he's got going on. If there's so, well, yeah, they won't be able to make that, time. but. Um, um, we're going we're gonna to see what we can do. Um, uh, again, make sure to keep up on our Facebook, our Instagram. Uh, Wayne's got a speaking event that he's doing in the uh, Northwest suburbs uh, tomorrow. Again, by the time this episode comes out, um, That'll have happened, but um, on where uh, can people get your book, Wayne? Yeah, um, my website, and you can hit that through hitting googling Just Google, bang, yeah. boom, burn, burn, Boston, burn, author Wayne Miller. You can you can find me okay. easily, and it comes out on Amazon when uh, next week. Next week, and if you go to my website, I personally sign the books and I put them in the envelope and mail them to you within about a day. Doesn't get any better than yeah. that. I was just say again, guys. So on um, on September 27th, the new book comes out. Bang, boom, burn. Um, Wayne Miller's newest book. You guys can check it out. You can definitely get it on Amazon if you if you uh, go on Amazon, type in that title. But again, 
try and check out. You can go to author Wayne Miller. You can go to um, Burn Boston Burn. If you go to Wayne's actual website, you'll be able to get a signed copy, which I think is you know priceless to me. Um, yeah, we this new book. I still have like a, a handful of notes that we could have talked about this book. We're already two right. hours into this I podcast, know. and we could have gone another two hours. But let's leave some let's leave some meat on the bones for the people who, are, who sure. want to read this book. For sure. But uh, yeah, Bang Boom Burn by Wayne M. Miller. M stands for mayhem because yep. when you <laughs> when you when you read this book, you're gonna understand why his parents named him Mayhem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me make a couple points. Yeah. Um, burn Boston Burn. I've contributed over $6,000 to fire victim charities. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, there you go. Uh, I don't make a lot of money from these books, and I don't care to make a lot of money, and I contribute at least 50% of profits towards fire victims, and I'm going to do something very similar with the new book. Um, well, there also, you go. Also, by getting it from me, you get color 18 color pictures in the new book, Amazon, only does it in black and white. <laughs> so get those books. If you don't, if you don't even know how to read, buy this book. Some Wayne's going to give some money to charity. Use it to straighten out your table. Buy this book. <laughs> look at the guy. pictures. Yeah. yeah, just look at. There's pictures in there for you. Yeah, I, I got to tell you again. Like it's, the, the, it's fireman friendly. It's fireman there's pictures. friendly. Yeah, if you want to start a fire, use this book. Right, fi- you, buy yeah. seven or eight copies yes. to, to start a fire yes. somewhere. If you're an arsonist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like make sure again it awesome how ironic art. would that be an <laughs> artistist really starting fires with wayne miller's book I, right god dang a, a now god there's dang, a third book a profitable a profitable proposition maybe that's you know what, what I mean? greg did with my the eight books he that's bought what he did he started fire oh no, i'm giving them out for gifts <laughs> oh, my fucking garbage can again again weird oh. close community well um, i'm glad that you you finally got to come in our humble studio here thank yeah. you so much it's amazing talking to you and like i said like we're two hours in and we could have gone another two well and that's the sad part is that me and you will go another two hours asking we are we shit. definitely are because we're not gonna because from here we're going to the illuminated brew works <laughs> oh yeah I illuminated still brew works where's wow. that vince 60 61 68 is it illuminated brew works is a brewery that we're going to um <laughs> i still haven't eaten dinner so yeah oh right. well, let's go get you some dinner yeah we gotta get him some dinner um again guys burnbossandburn.com is where you can get the signed books, either one of them, Burn, Boss, and Burn or Bang, Boom, Burn. Um, again, Wayne Miller, it's it's another situation where if you're buying this book, not only you're getting an incredible book that's signed, but you're going to get uh, you're gonna get a lot of, of that money is going towards charity too, which is awesome. Wayne being in town, just so everyone knows, Wayne doing his speaking events in town, he actually – asked me specifically like what are some great charities in illinois he wants to put money yep. at which he's got some great recommendations from previous podcast or from previous podcasts that we've had but you know not only is this guy given charity or given a charity but he's given a local charities too so um thank you so much for yeah. that uh subscribe to our youtube yes right uh, the genesis tool uh video is is awesome. Uh, it'd be coming up on the next one uh, within the next week mm-hmm. uh, those th- that those videos are going to be awesome. That was a great time being out there. I had fun. Yeah, no, it was a great time. Uh, Illuminated um, Brewworks, 6168 North Northwest Highway, I believe is the address. It's If you get to, if you go to 6168, you're going to find it. Yeah, you'll see it for sure. 
Um, That's got to be the end. Yeah. And and again, like like Vince is saying, please make sure to subscribe. Um, I, I definitely want to make sure that I'm pushing. We, I took a look the other day and our um, we've got a again. Thank you guys all so much for the support. Um, but if you guys are listening, please try and drop a comment. Um, try, and, try and drop a comment and subscribe and rate our um, our podcast because uh, there's there's clearly a lot more people. There's clearly a lot more people that are listening than there should be, but <laughs> there's a lot more people that are I listening there. I think Corey's aunt's got her neighbors. Uh, not to only the to, neighbor, so they doubled our listenership. And I think they like made a username with the dog too, yes. which is super nice of them. And, and if you have somebody that you guys want to hear on the podcast, throw it out. Send yep. us a comment. Tell us who you want. We we uh, we can find them. Yep. We'll find them. Yeah. We'll uh, forcibly bring them in here. Yeah. Well, I mean, then, gunpoint maybe. Who yeah. Knows? Whatever. Um, well, we got to do what we got to do for right, you guys. Right. Got to make that cheddar, man. So, um, and then again, uh, make sure to, to um, like and subscribe our Facebook and Instagram because we're going to be putting up some, uh, some videos and some content from Wayne himself and uh, other people down the road, too. So, so thank you uh, for tuning in to Chicago's Brave Stories. In one, in four. Truck 2, Truck 10, Inland 82, Battalion 2, Fire 1020 North Main, help is on the way. The opinions and views are that of Chicago's bravest stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law enforcement organizations.